The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And to help us do that today is our guest, Lori Dorfman. Dr. Dorfman is director of the Berkeley Media Studies Group, and I became fascinated with the work of the Berkeley Media Studies Group because it looks at how news frames health issues. Dr. Dorfman's work has focused on how media portrayals of public health issues are presented to us. She's looked at children's health, food and beverage marketing, nutrition, breastfeeding, violence, alcohol and tobacco, and other drugs. Dr. Dorfman also co-chairs the Food Marketing Work Group, which is a national coalition dedicated to eliminating harmful food marketing. Welcome, Dr. Dorfman. Well, thank you, Melinda. I love going to your website. I love learning about how media influences us when we're not really aware of it. And I think most of the time when you talk to people about this, they'll say, well, you know, advertising and marketing, I'm smarter than that, but it doesn't affect me. But really it does. How does it affect us exactly? Well, what you described is what the researchers call the third-person effect, which is the idea that marketing probably affects somebody, just not me. And so obviously it has to affect somebody, otherwise they wouldn't invest, the companies wouldn't invest billions of dollars in it. So there's a lot of ways it works. A standard understanding of marketing is the four Ps of marketing, product, place, price, and promotion. And that's a really comprehensive way to think about it. It's the way the marketers think about it. It's more than media, but it is a way to surround us with the presence of a product at the right price and the right place with the right kind of promotion so that we incorporate it into our lives easily. What led you to focus your work on media's influence? What led me to this was this interesting intersection between media and health comes from the idea, actually the history of public health, which tells us that the best way to improve a population's health, a whole population, not just any given individual. If you want to affect a whole population, the best way to improve their health is to improve the environment in which they live Mm -hmm. because environments have an enormous impact on whether we are healthy or not, where we work, where we play, whether we walk, what's in our environment. All of these things add up to whether a population will be healthy, including things like equity, which there was a recent study about, so I can tell you about that. But the history of public health tells us that environments affect health, and if you want to improve them, improve the environment. So if you want to improve the environments in our day and age, you have to pay attention to who sets the rules that make the environments look the way they do. Are there lots of supermarkets or not? Are there places to walk or not? How do the rules get set and the decisions get made for what shapes that environment? And in our day and age, policymakers make those decisions. So if we want to affect what policymakers do, if we want to have a serious conversation with our policymakers, we have to pay attention to what they pay attention to. 
and they pay attention to the news. So that's what brought me as a public health person to want to find out more about how health issues are portrayed in the news, what's missing from those portrayals if we want policymakers to make good decisions for all of us, and then to study that so we can understand what the starting point of that conversation is. So when we study the news, for example, our general question is, if the only way somebody got information about this issue was from the news, what would they know? And very important, what wouldn't they know? That great question, what's missing, that we don't ask enough, I think. Right. I have to tell you a little story about my own experience when I had an aha moment about media framing. And it had to do when I was doing some work with breastfeeding education. And I don't know if you know Carol Bryant, but she did a lot of work with social marketing. I'm sure you're aware of her work with Best Start and Getting Moms to Breastfeed. And she showed us brochures that the pharmaceutical industry had created to promote formula, right? That's what they're selling. But at the same time, we have to tell women that breastfeeding is their best option because it's public health after all, and we're talking about an infant. We have to give women the correct information to keep their babies healthy. But the pharmaceutical industry brochures about breastfeeding always showed a white woman in a little pink robe sitting in front of a window, broad daylight in a rocking chair. And the way it was explained to me was when a woman looked at that image, she, A, would not be able to identify with it. Perhaps she wasn't white, or perhaps she couldn't possibly have the luxury of sitting in front of a window during the center of the day. I had no idea that those kinds of subliminal messages would be coming through a brochure, but that's really what led me down this path to explore how media influences our core feelings about what we can and can't do. That's an interesting story, and actually we've done a little bit of work on how breastfeeding has been framed. I don't know if you saw that when you were exploring the website, but I can tell you about it. The, The way to think about the media influence is that we receive cues from things that we hear, things that we see, things that we experience that shape our understanding of those things. So when you as an individual come to that brochure that you just described, you don't come with a blank slate in your head. You come with a head actually full of ideas, of images, of values, of experiences that you've had. And when you're getting new information, then your brain works to incorporate it into what you already know. So when you're looking at that picture of the breastfeeding mother in the sunny window in the rocking chair in the middle of the day, your brain is looking at that and thinking, good mother, this is what a good mother does. And all those ideas get transmitted and connect to ideas that you already have about what a good mother is and what a good mother does. And that's a deep level of meaning that isn't explicit but is definitely present. And the question for public health advocates is what kinds of ideas, stories, and values are we queuing up in our own messages so that people can see that individuals who make decisions about their health certainly can have an impact, but as public health people, we want to be sure we're queuing up the parts of the environment that have an impact on whole populations' health. Otherwise, people won't see that. 
when we're coming to information, especially when Americans come to information, we come with a brain that has been inundated with ideas about personal responsibility. One of our most enduring stories that we tell ourselves is that in this country, if you try hard, you can succeed. And, you know, Melinda, that's a fabulous story. I mean, I was raised on that story. And it is an empowering story that I, uh, under my own power, can make things happen for myself and maybe for others. So it's a very exciting and dominant and frequently reproduced story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. But the problem with that is that it comes with a flip side. And the flip side is, if you don't succeed, it's your own fault. And you can't have one without the other. So both of them come together. And yet, as big a story as they are together, as big a frame as they are to encompass a lot of how we understand and experience the world, they're not the only way. The other part of it is that environments influence people. And if we can't cue that up, then people won't be able to see it and they won't understand why public policies matter in terms of health outcomes. You've got many publications on your website at the Berkeley Media Studies Group for our listeners who want to go online. And one of them that really intrigued me had to do with what surrounds us, shapes us, making the case for environmental change. And you tell a story there about craft foods and the framing of how we're going to present information. And you write here, linguists say that framing is how our minds recognize patterns of ideas, categorize them, and derive meaning from them. Mm-hmm. So with the craft example, is that when craft reframed recipes as solutions rather than as cooking, more people requested the company's recipes. The worst frame was learn to cook. I guess people saw that as being perhaps more time consuming. But to say easy stir fry in 15 minutes, that was very popular. So it's the same information. It's a, it's a stir fry recipe. Right. But it's how we frame it that, that is going to make a difference as to whether or not somebody picks it up and runs with it. That's right. Learn to cook is a chore. Easy stir fry in 15 minutes solves the problem of dinner. <laughs> exactly. Right. I'm wondering about other frames that maybe we don't catch. You know, this is one that was pointed out to me, but mm-hmm. what are some of the other frames that we might see in our environment that might set us up to do something or not? Well, there are lots of frames. It is hard to just grab them out of the air and sort of set them up and say, look at this one, look at this one, look at this one. Although that's kind of what we do when we're studying the news in public health. What I said before about this tension we have in our society between frames that set up personal responsibility and then the other side of the equation, institutional accountability, is are really two important ends of the spectrum that a lot of frames fit into. So you can have 
lots of stories in the newspaper, for example, that you might interpret as a hero story, somebody who accomplished something above all odds or against great odds. And then you can have a fallen hero story, right? So that's what we have. Just think about the recent news about Lance Armstrong, right? You had a hero story. You had a fallen hero story. Then it's easy to point to those kinds of stories where individuals are at the center of the frame. What's harder is to find the stories that have more than just an individual at the center of the frame that tell a little bit broader story where the lens is pulled back a little bit. So the way I characterize this is it's like the difference between a portrait and a landscape. So in a portrait story, in a news story, for example, that tells some tale about an individual or an event that happened, what the researchers call episodic stories because they're about some episode. Those stories tend to be tightly framed around that individual or event. And the important thing from the research is that when people see stories like that, then they interpret the solution to the problem that was depicted in ways that tend to blame the victim. So regardless of what the topic was, That's how people interpret those stories, which is problematic if your goal is public health. The opposite of that is what researchers call a thematic story. It's what I'm calling a landscape story. So there's a story that might have an event or a person at the center, especially if it's a news story. You kind of have to have that. So it's not that people are outside the story, but it's that there's more being told. And that more has to do with the circumstances that led up to the conditions that caused the problem in the first place or some other aspect of the context that helps people understand that there's more going on there. So if it's a story about nutrition, for example, and what parents are feeding kids, it's not just the harried parent in the grocery store that is succumbing to a whiny child because she's been at work all day and you know has to choose her battles like all parents do, right? Mm-hmm. That would be a very individually focused story, a tight portrait around the parent. I'd be more interested in a story that pulls that lens back and helps us understand that the parent wasn't the one who put the sugary cereals within you know arm's reach of the toddler who's at the supermarket with her and didn't put the SpongeBob and Dora the Explorer pictures right on the front of the box. So there are things that the parent has to make good decisions about, but there are things that that parent has no control over that shape the environment in a way that has a huge impact on what she's going to do for her family. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Lori Dorfman. She holds a doctorate of public health from the University of California in Berkeley, and she is the director of the Berkeley Media Studies Group. I have to ask you, I love this idea of the landscape because I often ask those questions, you know, well, well, why did this person act in a certain way? And that why question is rarely addressed in the media. I mean, they have seconds to tell stories, maybe a minute or two, and that's a luxury. So there's never time to really show that landscape in which that person's behavior exists. And even if there is a landscape given or presented, I can't tell you how often I hear, still, no matter what, it's up to the parent to make a good choice. That's that's true. You hear it a lot. And what we say when we hear that is that, of course, parents have responsibility to make good choices for their families. But parents need help. 
Parents aren't the ones who decide what's on the supermarket shelves. Parents aren't the ones who decide if the schoolyard stays open after hours so kids in the neighborhood have some place to play. Parents aren't the ones who decide whether there will, in fact, be a good public transportation system so they can get to the supermarket and home from work in time to prepare a meal. So it's up to us to raise those questions, pull that frame out, and point to the places in the landscape that we can do something about so that there's a better chance for health across the whole population. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think it is our responsibility to ask those questions. And you've got also on your website, well, you've got a hall of shame, which is quite interesting with regard to just how insidious marketers are. There's a playground landscape that has Lunchables embedded in the play area. And you look at that and you think, how on earth did anyone even approve that kind of thing. So it's entertaining for people to go and and look and see what the environment or what that landscape really looks like. Do you want to mention anything about products that are listed on the Hall of Shame at all or anything about that? Sure. Okay. Sure. The webpage you're pointing to is not on bmsg.org, but it is on foodmarketing.org. And on that website that we uh, maintain with Center for for Science and the Public Interest for the Food Marketing Work Group, we have a category called the Wall of Shame, where we have put up images of ads that we think should be changed, that we think the food companies could be doing a much better job than they are. Many of them say they want to do something about food and nutrition and that they care deeply about the families that are buying their products. I think they need to be trying a little bit harder here in making the products that they market to kids healthier. The example you're pointing to was a um, what's called a corporate social responsibility campaign. So the company, Kraft, gave a makeover, a playground makeover to a boys and girls club, the Burbank Boys and Girls Club, which, you know, badly needed one. Kids needed a place to play. The you know the asphalt needed repairing. They needed new equipment. There were plenty of needs to be met. But when Kraft met those needs, they also slathered the playground with their logo. So you can't be on that playground and not see Lunchables everywhere. And that might be okay if there were more than one or two healthy Lunchables choices. But most of the food in that package is stuff kids should avoid, not stuff kids should be eating every day at lunchtime. So there's a real disconnect here between what's being advertised and what's good for kids. Mm-hmm. And I think in getting back to that landscape question, uh-huh. the question I like to ask is, is it okay? Is, has it become acceptable for schools to be so underfunded that they have to take the money from the marketer? That is a, a great question, Melinda, and I think the answer is no, that it is the responsibility of citizens to fund the school, not the responsibility of marketers. Mm-hmm. What we need are priorities that say not only the health of our communities, but our very democracy rests on whether we are providing solid education for our children, and they should not be paying for that education with the pennies from their pockets. Mm -hmm. And that's why these arguments came up when they 
first started getting rid of soda out of schools in the Oakland Unified School District and the Los Angeles Unified, the two first ones in the nation to get rid of soda on their campus. So it's definitely on us as uh, citizens, as the ones who are the grown-ups and responsible for what kids are learning and what the environment is they're learning in. That's our responsibility. That's not a marketer's responsibility. But citizens have been so steeped in this idea that, or perhaps this is a frame, if I'm understanding this all correctly, that taxes are bad. We don't want any more new taxes. So, okay, we don't pay taxes or we don't have a fair tax system in place. And then the institutions that uphold our democracy become underfunded. You know, I'm, I, I know you're right that people have complained about this and that it's tax is uh, the new four-letter word, even though I think it's only got three letters. Right. And if you think about it, though, what are taxes? They're simply a mechanism for us to pool our resources so that together we can do what not one of us can do by ourselves. We can't build the roads by ourselves. We can't put bridges in place as individuals. We can't support a school system just one-on-one. It is a pooling of our resources and a pooling of our ideals and our values. It's about what the society is that we want to live in and how we want to be together. And I think the idea of taxes is really just a a mechanism for saying we're in this world together and what we do together is important because it creates the world that we want to live in and it's up to us to say that that is worthwhile and you know nobody likes to pay more than they need to I think what's been missing from our discussion is what those taxes bring us you know in my house I think probably just like in your house I turn a faucet and water comes out. Clean, potable water that I can drink, bathe in, wash, and cook in. That doesn't happen everywhere in the world. And when I leave the house, I go on a street that's safe. I have a stoplight and a stop sign. I get to work safely. The building I'm in is subject to certain building codes so that if there is an earthquake here in California, it's not as likely to fall down. All of that happens because we made decisions together as a society that we want a healthy place to live, work, and play where we have systems that work and support us. And I think what has happened is those systems have become invisible and we don't see the structures around us anymore that allow us to do what we want for ourselves and our families. We have to make that more visible. We have to make that part of the landscape seen so that people can value it and understand what it contributes to their lives. I think that's such a wonderful way to have a discussion with someone about taxes when that issue comes up. I like the idea of trying to help others see that we're all in this together versus the us versus them model that seems to be a common frame. There's that word again, frame. Well, we have to talk a little bit about the digital environment in which our children live. We just have a few minutes left, but gosh, you've done so much work with this. So children are now in a new kind of marketing. We call it the new age of marketing. And in 2008, the Federal Trade Commission put out a report 
about how children are targeted by food and beverage marketers. And there's a new report out. And I wonder if you would like to talk a little bit about some of the new findings. Sure. I think that the digital marketing piece of this is extremely important. We do work with the Center for Digital Democracy and together maintain a website called digitalads.org. And on the updates page there, we have been cataloging the new kinds of marketing that food and beverage companies in particular have been using. We also have a couple pages there called Case Study and FTC that might be interesting to people that kind of put the whole story together. What's going on is that companies are able to have a conversation or their, let me put it this way, their products are able to have a conversation with kids completely out of earshot of parents and other adults. Because as the mobile devices become the standard with which we communicate, and kids now through their iPods and their own mobile devices for music and texting and whatever else are carrying those around all the time themselves, that's the mechanism now that food companies are using to transmit information, to identify where kids are. If they're within a few blocks of a fast food place, they could be texted a code that gets them a coupon or a discount on a on something to eat or drink. And all of this is integrated seamlessly into the digital way that people, particularly people who are young, are experiencing their world and participating in society right now. That makes it extremely difficult to, one, monitor what's going on, and then, two, do something about it if it's not the kind of thing that should be in front of kids. And that's what we're trying to look at on digital ads. And what the FTC report found is that the dollar amount has gone down slightly in terms of what food companies are now marketing to kids, but that's primarily because TV spending went down. In fact, there's a lot more eyeballs in front of food ads because the ads are coming to kids digitally, either through games they play on the Internet or through their mobile phones or whatever device they're using. And that's much, much cheaper advertising. So the food and beverage companies are getting a lot more bang for the buck, as it were. It's cheaper, too, isn't it? Much cheaper. That's that's where the bang for the buck comes in. So they're getting more eyeballs for fewer dollars. And is it more effective? Well, it's hard to say from a scientific point of view because it's so new the studies haven't been done. But here's what worries me. What we do know from the science is that TV ads absolutely increase kids' desire for foods that they should avoid. And what the Institute of Medicine found is that food and beverage marketing, primarily TV marketing, is completely at odds with kids' health and is probably doing damage. Now, the studies that that is all based on were of TV commercials, which are about 30 seconds at a pop. Well, if you're a kid playing a game, pushing a Fruit Loop around a, a little maze on a screen, you're not doing that for 30 seconds. Sometimes what the research has shown is you're doing for up to 16 minutes. That's way, way different. If 30 seconds at a time has a dramatic effect on what kids eat, then I think the 12 to 16 minutes they spend in a single game playing that is actually marketing, that's going to be much, much more intense. The engagement level is so much higher. 
I want to thank you so much for sharing these pieces of the work that you're doing at the Berkeley Media Studies Group. We've been speaking with Lori Dorfman. She holds a doctorate in public health from the University of California in Berkeley, and she is director of the Berkeley Media Studies Group, and she also co-chairs the Food Marketing Work Group, which is a national coalition dedicated to eliminating harmful food marketing. I encourage our listeners to go to the website, which is simply www.bmsg.org, or foodmarketing.org and digitalads.org for all of this information and more. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Dorfman, thank you so much for being my guest. Well, thank you so much for having me, Melinda.